Dr. Joseph Caps, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Joe, it's good to see you, man. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. I super appreciate you and your time. I really enjoyed the last conversation that we had when you were on with me the last time. And uh, I'm just super pumped to be talking to you tonight. So welcome back, man. How you doing? I'm doing great, Duke. Uh, it's a great privilege to be back on. I, I also had a wonderful time last time. So I, I look forward to uh, what God has us talk about tonight for sure. Yeah, man. Yeah. So let's let's uh, let's get into it. And, and I I do want to say that some of the things that we're going to talk about tonight, uh, I know where we're going to start. I'm not sure where the conversation is going to go. I probably should just mention this off the bat. Uh, just trigger warning, because um, my first question that I want to just bring up to you um, tonight, Dr. Joe, is around the area of child abuse. And, and I know that uh, probably a good portion of our conversation tonight is going to deal with trigger warnings because we're going to be talking about abuse and, and counseling and trauma and things like that. So I just want to get that out there Absolutely. for anybody that may be listening. But I did have an idea of where I wanted to kind of at least jump this conversation off with tonight. And I shared that with you. But then um, I was I was poking around on your YouTube channel. And let me just mention um, that uh, the Project Paladin YouTube channel, I think it is a spectacular resource. So for anybody watching, listening to this podcast, I would just encourage you to check that out. Uh, Dr. Joe, the, the only thing that I <laughs> enjoy more than your expertise and the knowledge that you bring out in the in your videos and in the content that you produce and the things that you talk about i love that the only thing i enjoy more than that is just how real you are with it how authentic you are and how honest you are with the way that you talk about these things the way that you talk about your life and your past and everything like that. And uh, I just I love your honesty. And I think that it's super essential. And I love the way that you dive into some of these topics to really create understanding, uh, in particular for the paladin community, which would be those that are on the front lines, first responders, uh, military veterans, uh, you know, people that work kind of upfront, up close and personal with trauma, and uh, with, um, you know, difficult, difficult things. And so I just really, really appreciate what you're doing. And I'm just super excited as somebody who's not an expert <laughs> in this kind of stuff. But I'm just I learned so much from you last time you were on. And I'm excited to uh, just have some conversations with you tonight and to just continue to learn from you. So anyway, all that to say, I just encourage everybody to check out the Project Paladin YouTube channel. And we'll share some more places and resources and things that you can go and some things that you can check out. Um, later on before we wrap up the podcast this evening. All that having been said, I had an idea of where I wanted to go with this, but then I was listening or I was watching a, a video on your YouTube channel and there's something that you said that has just kind of been sticking in my mind and it was child abuse is the largest or most rampant public health, health crisis currently affecting our nation today. I'm wondering if you uh, could kind of talk about that a little bit and just explain what what you mean by that and what that looks like. So when we say it's the number one health crisis, um, it's because of what stems from uh, child abuse. And so we end up having depression, anxiety. Uh, we have very unhealthy attachment styles, which uh, 
is is probably the number one marriage ender, uh, especially in the paladin community. Uh, it's a matter of having unhealthy attachment styles, and then we carry that into our marriage. Uh, so it uh, the percentage of divorce is upwards of seventy percent, which is uh, which is awful. Uh, we hate to see it, um, but we also see the depression come out of that. We see the anxiety come out of that, and then there's <clears throat> the curse of abuse or the chain of abuse that carries on generationally. Uh, so this just continues on. Uh, so it, it's, it is a tremendous health crisis. Um, we, we look at folks that have pioneered in the field that have uh, advocated for so many years. Um, Dr. Um, Vanderkolk is, is one of the pioneers, and uh, he created the National Children's Traumatic Stress Network, um, has worked with SAMHSA, which is substance abuse, uh, and he has been advocating for what's called developmental trauma uh, for 40 plus years, uh, and, and the crisis that comes out of that. Uh, but we end up with very unhealthy adults, uh, that come out of the child abuse home. Uh, so that just continues on and it, it spreads, uh, uh, and even when we're trying not to spread it, uh, you still leak, even people that are trying very hard not to be that person, uh, we, we leak. And so we do affect people. I super appreciate what you shared there, Joe. And I think I jumped the, the, the gun just a little bit. If you would, um, could you tell just a little bit about who you are and what you do and just some of the work that you've been involved in? Uh, so uh, I, I've run the gamut. Um, I started off in uh, being a very unhealthy person myself um, and went through a lot of different protocols and treatments, many of the ones that they're still using now uh, that unfortunately are ineffective. Uh, and it's not for a lack of trying, it's that we continue to do cookie cutter things. We change something here, we tweak something there, um, and they're ineffective. Um, and perhaps one of the greatest things is understanding the difference between uh, PTSD and complex PTSD. And complex PTSD is more of what you're going to see with child abuse uh, going into your adult years because it's polytrauma. Um, it's several events. Um, so... I start off from that point of view as being a very unhealthy, wounded, um, lonely, hurting person. Um, and when I got saved, God started to lead me out of that. And it has been a journey. This was not an overnight thing. This was over uh, 20 plus years <clears throat> that God had to take me through the process of healing, which led me ultimately to a position uh, to where I work primarily with polytrauma uh, in particular uh, with with all demographics, not just uh, the first responder community uh, and military community, but but basically anybody who is in, in a first line service role, whether that be an emergency doctor or nurse, corrections, security, dispatch. Um, you know, we had talked about last time on the show that it's a very fine line when they talk about like the thin blue line for law enforcement. Uh, the line for the paladin community is very thin. It's only 2.7% of the population. Uh, and so I come from the premise that God actually crafted us to do what we do. Um, and it's about turning pain into purpose. And that becomes the ultimate healing uh, for our folks is when they understand who they are, that they were crafted that way by God, and that everything that they went through has has been for the purpose of the Lord and to glorify Him and to help other people. 
so, so clinically, uh, I've been trained in just about um, 10 to 12 different modalities uh, as I was on my journey myself to heal thyself. Uh, so I've, I've had a lot of experience working with the VA, um, a lot of experience working with departments. Um, I have been an active chaplain with several first responder departments and the military. So I have seen a tremendous amount uh, working from that perspective, a tremendous amount of uh, stress and uh, the polytrauma and the cumulative stress that, that our community goes through. It's, it's just unbelievable. Uh, but God has blessed me with being able to spend time with some amazing people and getting to understand them uh, and coming up with more uh, evidential and effectual ways uh, to treat these things. And, you know, I believe that it starts with a soul wound or a moral wound. And uh, I believe that we can't even experience any type of healing. Uh, nothing is going to be effective until we address the fact that we need to deal with our soul wound. Uh, and we have to go to the perfect physician to address that. And, and then we start seeing uh, counseling models, sometimes medications, different things become uh, 10 times more effective once we've addressed the root cause. Uh, the unfortunate thing is even in psychology, they train us the same way that they do doctors, and it is to treat symptoms. Uh, so mental health is no different. They're, they're training people how to deal with the symptoms of the mental health crisis, but they're never addressing the underlying cause. So as long as we're treating symptoms, all we're doing is negating uh, the consequences of those symptoms. We're never really healing or helping people be cured. Hmm. Can you can you explain, is there a difference between those two terms that you use there? Use the term, um, let's see if I can remember that. Well, cumulative stress and polytrauma. Can you, can you explain, is there a difference between those two? Yes, there is. Okay, so cumulative stress are repetitive stressors that are over a long period of time. Um, perhaps the ones that we see the most cumulative stress with would be law enforcement officers. Um, I've really got a shout out to that population because unlike a lot of the other first responders uh, and even military, we, we tend to kind of have a uh, a little hill that we climb and here's our trauma and then we come down and we have a lull and then we have another one. So it's kind of like an even uh, keel there. Law enforcement, it's like a roller coaster ride. They can work a, a 10 or a 12 hour tour and they literally can be like they're at Bush Gardens or something or at one of the theme parks because they're literally going from, uh, you know, a cat stuck in the tree down here. And then they go, boom, up the spectrum to a domestic call that gets all of the adrenal response going. And then they come back down to uh, maybe a drunken public. I mean, and then they might go to an MVA accident and experience a death. Uh, and, and they, a lot of times, experience all of that in one tour. So cumulative stress is about, uh, imagine dying from a thousand cuts. Like if somebody was trying to murder you with a paper cut, that's what cumulative stress is. So it adds up. And it adds up and it adds up and it adds up. And then it, it gets to a point where it's got to purge. Uh, and that can look like a lot of different things. It can uh, become negative coping mechanisms. It can become rage. It can become all kinds of things. Uh, we've even seen, uh, you know, what they call a nervous breakdown uh, is really what they call an acute psychotic break where you might sit in the corner and drool for an hour. 
Uh, I mean, I've seen stuff like this where that it just comes to a pinnacle where your body cannot take anymore. Now, polytrauma is a series of traumas over a lifetime. And so if you took one trauma that would cause PTSD symptoms, imagine having 10 of those events or 15 of those events. And, and the reason why it's important to know the difference is because you have to treat the individual much different. Um, a lot of times with cumulative stress, we actually have a little bit more control. We can go in there and we can do interventions like, uh, say, operational stress first aid or something that's field-based. And we can look at some of these stressors and some of them, you know, we put on ourselves. Uh, let's be honest. Some of these cumulative stress items we do to ourselves. So we're able to go in there and kind of see what can we minimize? What can we have control over to uh, help mitigate the cumulative stress? Polytrauma, on the other hand, we have absolutely no control. Um, it, that, you know, trauma happens. Uh, trauma is a product of sin. It's a product of free will. Um, and it happens to us. And there's not much that we can do to stop that from happening. Uh, so polytrauma is difficult because when you're trying to use the uh, standard treatments for PTSD, they're ineffective uh, because, you know, a lot of it involves sticking points and different things. And um, sometimes when we're trying to disassociate or treat one of the traumas, we can actually trigger another trauma. Uh, so you have to treat it completely differently. Um, it, it's about uh, if you could imagine a conveyor belt. And it's designed to take a 12 by 12 box. And if we tried to put a 24 by 24 box on there, the line is going to kick this box off every time, right? It, it can't process it. Uh, so we have to take polytrauma and we have to break it into smaller pieces. And we have to do it methodically. Um, and, and a lot of times it involves, you know, what is the current crisis right now? Uh, and we deal with that current crisis and then we just kind of peel it back uh, and go from there. Yeah. And something that I, I think is really it's it's a natural kind of a transition for for example for a lot of uh, military personnel that come out of the military often it, it's just kind of a natural transition for them to go into something like law enforcement or to ems or something like that where they're coming out of one absolutely extremely intense and high level kind of cumulative stress environment right and then transitioning into another cumulative stress environment and i've actually heard i don't know if this is true or if this was just this the experience of the people that i've listened to but i've actually heard that um you know people that were in military like in sort of combat situations and then coming out and getting into uh, you know working with law enforcement or with um working as an emt or something like that as a first responder and that for them, it, it felt like or it seemed like that working as a first responder was actually even more traumatic for them than it was. Absolutely. Maybe it's because of the level of expectation or because I like I don't I don't know exactly what that could possibly be. But but be that as it may, it's like from one sort of very hyped up stress kind of environment into another and you mentioned law enforcement, and I do just want to say, I think, you know, especially in the days that we're living in, there there can be such a negative stigma attached to people in law enforcement. And the truth is that the vast majority of them are amazing people. They're doing an amazing job, an extremely difficult job. And uh, most of us don't understand what it's like to go to work every day, 
thinking that there's always the chance that I could encounter somebody who wants to take me out. You know what I mean? And most of us just don't understand what that's like. Right. But how do you think that somebody that is involved in either this line of work or again, just any kind of environment where there is just stress in an ongoing way and there's nothing that you could really do to avoid it. It's just there. Um, what are some things that people can do to kind of protect their mind, protect their psyche and essentially, you know, set themselves up to avoid having some of these, you know, mental health issues and, and uh, things like that, that so often come with it. Well, I'm going to say the obvious answer for me first, Duke, which it may not be the popular answer, but I believe 100% that when you turn it over to the Lord, that's the first step. I I truly believe that, and and I've seen it in every demographic that uh, just like if you were doing a 12-step recovery program, the first step is to admit that you're powerless. And by doing that and understanding that there's a higher power in control, this is a huge step. It, it truly is. Um, you, your, your life is not manageable right now. You're not in control. And this is bigger than you, and you need something bigger than you to help fix it. So that, that it's like a surrender. Um, you're out of denial. You're admitting you have a problem. Okay? Very difficult in this field because we have failed our people so badly in the past with mistreatment, uh, wrong treatments, um, you know, career-ending inquiries, you know, so there's there's a tremendous amount of distrust there. So if I was talking to, say, a group of police officers, I would tell them, find an off-grid peer support group, and they're out there, okay? I do one, um, There there's other ones out there, and I have seen unbelievable success in an off-grid peer support group where you can go into a room and be vulnerable with other people that completely and totally understand what you're dealing with, and you can leave that crap in the room. Um, You've got to have outlets like that. Um, I love to see uh, our folks engage in physical fitness just because of the endorphins that your brain produces. That helps tremendously. Uh, And we have to learn to communicate. Uh, That is a huge thing. We have to learn how to talk to our spouse. We have to learn how to talk to our kids and understand that they just want to connect with us. We don't have to bring out the gory details. We don't have to to um, be in a role of protecting them when we're talking to them. We can simply just let them understand, you know, hey, dad had a, had a rough night. You know, um, it's okay to tell your children, hey, you know, daddy had to had to deal with a with a little dead child tonight. Um, that's not too much for them to comprehend. Um, you're actually teaching them compassion by doing that. Um, and, and they develop tremendous respect for their parents. Um, but cumulative stress, it, that's why it's a killer because there's no relief. It just continues on. You're not giving yourself any outlets to purge that stuff. Um, and if you don't have trust in your department, if you don't feel like you have people you can reach out to, whoever it is, your CIT team, whatever they have, there are off-grid groups out there. They're getting more and more popular, and the reason why is because we're seeing so much success. It doesn't matter if you're a neuroscientist or who you are. You cannot argue with the evidence, and we are seeing a tremendous amount of success. Um, I got to throw some props out to a good friend of mine. Uh, Jonathan Wall in Florida, who uh, is starting a program called the Blue Guardian Network, 
Uh, so I hope uh, I hope that some officers are watching this tonight and they check that out. Um, he has a program called Peace Inside the Uniform, uh, which is going to be an unbelievable online tool for police officers to be with other officers, completely safe, completely confidential. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, world changing. That's how strongly I feel about it. I got to participate uh, in a demo program, and it is, it's is—it's unbelievable. Um, he is an ex-medically uh, retired police officer who is very, very religious. So he, he, has, um, he has experienced the healing of Christ, and he wants our officers to be out there and to have peace inside the uniform. So there's programs like this out there. Um, and we just have to plug our people into it. Yeah. So on that, when it comes to spe specifically our veterans, you know, I, I think that we would that that we would agree that not enough is being done for them. No. And the the level of suicidality among veterans, it's something that we discussed last time. 22 or 23 a day as the as the average yes. statistic for uh, suicides among veterans. Um, it's crazy. It what is. do you think is missing from the programs that we have set up or even I don't know if it's a system, if it's a systemic thing, if it has to do with the way that people transition from out of the military back into regular civilian life or whatever the case is like what do you think is missing from either the care or lack thereof or whatever it is that are that's given to our veterans or what do you think are some steps that that can be taken or i don't know if these things are maybe starting to become more and more apparent or or not uh if they're starting to be applied more and more or where where things are right now but what do you think are some things that are missing and uh, what are some things that can be done to, to make improvements in that area of care for our veterans? So, Duke, um, I think I had mentioned last time I spent uh, 10 solid years um, at the VA, very in-depth at the Center for PTSD. And one of the, the things that I saw over and over again, and, and I hate to call them cookie cutter programs, but they really are. Um, we get just a hair of success and then we want to market that as a successful intervention and, it, and it's not people don't like my opinion on this because i'm going to go right back to you know the number one thing we're missing is faith-based interventions that's the number one thing um, we have chaplains at the va uh, but they are not in a role an active role in the mental health process um, we even um, i have a chaplain under me in the guard and she actually is a mental health chaplain for the VA, but yet when you hear about what she does, she's still not in an active mental health role. And, and I think that if we bring in the element of faith, that there's something bigger than us. I, I mean, Duke, let's look at the evidence. Why is AA, why has it been so successful? Why has NA been so successful? The, some of the most successful programs ever in history to get people off of substance abuse and narcotics. And, you know, it, it starts with what? A higher power. The evidence is there, but we just don't want to talk about that stuff. We are so politically correct. We're so afraid we're going to offend. I, I would venture to say, and you can quote me on this all day long, it doesn't matter what religion you are. If you go somewhere and you know that that's what's going to give you relief 
from what you're dealing with, they're going to try it because they're desperate. They're absolutely desperate. And, and that's what we need to promote more than anything. Um, there are well-meaning, I'm not going to belittle the VA at all because there are wonderful, well-meaning people there that are doing everything they can to help in a broken system, the same broken system that is mental health as a whole. And there's lots of reasons for that, but we don't have enough time to talk about that tonight. You know, you can blame insurance, pharmacology, whatever you want, but the system is junk. It, it doesn't work. Um we're 22 years uh, into, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, and other conflicts in the world, and we have lost four times the amount of soldiers uh, that we've lost in combat since Vietnam uh, to suicide. It's unacceptable. Um, it is the number one cause of death for our first responders as well. It's off the charts for corrections. It's off the charts for dispatch. Um, this year alone, now that we actually have a database that we're tracking law enforcement suicide, we are all the way up to 40. It is April. It is the fourth month, and we have already had four law enforcement, 40 law enforcement officers take their life this year. Um, I, one is unacceptable in my book. Um, it continues on. Uh, the definition of an insanity is what? We continue to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. Um, we we have got to start looking at the fact that what we're doing is not working. Um, I believe in a holistic approach, and I think that we need to take the successful elements out of everything that's available. So if we if we have a client that responds to um, exposure, then let's capitalize on that success with that one client. Maybe they need a different model of therapy. Maybe they respond better to cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, the point is no one fits in a box. Um, you know, if you go to the YouTube channel that Duke is talking about, you'll see what the theory is of Project Paladin. We're all different, just like a fingerprint. God crafted us to be who we are. We don't fit in a box, plain and simple. And until we stop treating people like that and trying to put them in a box and everybody fits nice and neat, we're never going to fix the problem. We have to start treating people like individuals and uh, understand who they are as an individual. Um, and that's how you're going to start having some successful treatment. So when you, when you talk about uh, peer support groups and the importance of things like that and just having that sort of support and camaraderie um, for, for people that do either that, that have had a history of being involved in those cumulative stress type of environments or that uh, are currently in those kind of environments. Do you think that, I don't know if this would be, if there's any way to do this for veterans, but for people who are in law enforcement and people who are other just frontline uh, workers, first responders and people like that, do you think that these things should just be a part of life, that they should be a part of like almost like a mandatory element to the the job that they do as, as something that just happens where they they go and they have some kind of a, a, a meeting place like that once a week or something like that where they can kind of let things off their chest and hear from other people and do you, do you think that that's something that's a potential solution or or what what do you think about that I, I have a, an idea. Um, I don't know if it's ever, you know, I probably need to figure out how to publish it. Maybe it'll get some attention. But what I would like to see personally is we have after action reviews. We have what's called a hot wash. We have critical incident debriefing. We have all of these things out there. Yeah. 
uh, but we're not utilizing it. And the reason why is because folks show up to their AAR and they're either on a fault finding mission or they clam up. They don't want to talk because if officer Bob is having an issue or, or whoever, or, you know, this Marine comes back from a mission and it stressed him out a little bit, they don't want to show any signs of weakness. They don't want anybody to think that it's taboo to work with them. There's, there's just too much at stake for them to cut loose. Now, what would be a beautiful concept would to be uh, to have independent or nonprofit, for that matter, organizations working side by side with departments, agencies, and the military to give them a place after an incident to go and sit down and do some critical incident debriefing, do some uh, psychological first aid, talk it out, talk it out with complete confidentiality and safety. This is how we keep acute stress from turning into cumulative stress or PTSD. It's simply by purging, talking about it, because our brain is just like our body. When we go into physical shock, you know, all of our blood goes to our organs, right? Our extremities are pretty much useless. Well, our brain is the same way. We go into psychological shock, okay? And so our brain tries to protect itself, and we either leave out details or sometimes we embellish details because our left and right brains are having just the worst time ever. It's like a bad marriage at that point. They're having a very hard time communicating because of the impact of the stress. So when we go to these after action reviews and if they were done independently, uh, completely safe with someone that was highly trained and knew what they were doing, then we could get our folks to talk it out to realize what really happened instead of what they think or conceptualized as happening. Um, I can give you a quick example. I, I have a, a very close friend that's a, uh, he's about to retire, but um, 20 some years in law enforcement, he's a sergeant. And um, last year they went to a call on Thanksgiving day and they were trying to talk a guy down. He had a knife and it was a difference between lethal force and tasing the person. Okay. And, and these guys have 30 seconds maximum to make a decision. It's unbelievable how quick they have to make a life or death call. So they're trying to talk him down. And in the one person's mind, it seemed like his partner was screwing up. He's like, man, tase the guy. If you don't hurry up and tase the guy, I'm going to have to kill him. And in your brain, it seems like it was a five minute period and he, he felt like his partner had let him down and, you know, he almost used lethal force on this man because there was a delay in the taste, but uh, they did do a, a successful taser deployment and they neutralized the threat and, and thank God. Right. Um, but upon review of the cam doing it properly. Um, and the reason that my friend did this is because he, um, had been in peer support groups, he had actually got to the point where he was leading peer support groups. So he had some some knowledge about it. And he said, you know what, we need to go look at the video, we need to get some closure. He goes and he looks at the video, and it was literally like 17 seconds, uh, the amount of time it took to tase the individual. Okay, so this, I'm, I'm using that as an example to show you that in the heat of the moment, in in the the midst of the traumatic event, we have no conceptualization of time. And so, you know, he's thinking my partner let me down and, and you got to think about what goes with those thoughts. Okay. You know, is this guy to safe to work with? You know, I almost killed a guy on Thanksgiving day because he didn't do what he was supposed to. I mean, you have all of these things going through your brain. And then he looks at this video and he's like, wow, not only did he act, 
but he acted very, very quickly and, and did exactly what he was supposed to do. Hmm. And so you see the difference there. He walks away from that call completely different than he would have if they would not have reviewed the video and got some clarity about the call. Because now he's going to take this home and he's going to have all of this misinformation in his brain because of that event. And he's going to be upset with his partner and, and it just culminates. So what's going to happen, right? He's going to have a bad relationship with his partner because of this. So you, you see it just, that's how cumulative stress works. You see, because now not only do we have the traumatic call, but we're ramping up because now we have a relationship problem with our partner and we can't count on him and you see it just escalates and all it took was a very simple act of hey you know he took his partner they kind of went behind closed doors let's look at this ourselves and see what we got and they walked away completely different because of that so that i mean that's just a, an example of, of something that i've experienced uh dealing with him and, and it's it's a phenomenal example in my opinion yeah, I, I think I think we would all do better. I, I just think it's hard for us to understand like people, people like me who have never worked in that kind of of a high stress environment as far as, you know, law enforcement or anything like that. I think it's hard for us to wrap our heads around just how difficult that must be. I mean, listening to you talk about that just now. I mean, imagine being in that kind of a situation where you are every time you go to work, you're taking your life into your hands. And then imagine like if you don't have if you if you feel like your your partner doesn't have your six you feel like there's there's not that kind of camaraderie there that you need so you're just more amped up you know when you go on a call or something like that maybe just even more just heightened awareness of the situation and every little thing and when you have almost no time to make these snap decisions it's like you know i, j I just think we would all do so much better to have more empathy across the board for our law enforcement um, officials and people who, you know, work in these kinds of environments and not in any way excusing some of the obviously, you know, terrible things that have happened um, over, you know, the, over, over the past couple of years. And, and well, obviously more than that, but, you know, in recent history, some of the, the very obviously wrong calls that were made and, you know, lives that were taken for no reason and things like that, not, not belittling that or excusing that in any way, Again, I mean, uh, we we can't really understand what it's like to be in those in that moment and just kind of making the best decision that you that you can think to make at the time. It seems like that would be such an important thing to figure out, man, like one way or another to figure this thing out where people actually feel comfortable and they feel safe talking about these things and getting these things off their chest and when they're going through something to feel like they could talk about it with somebody else who's involved in that same kind of a, a situation with them without feeling that fear of being ostracized or that fear of being sat down or that fear of being fired or that fear of you know being lumped into some kind of a category but like being able to actually talk these things out and I don't I mean, I don't know what that would actually look like, but it seems to me like that's such a big deal, creating that kind of an atmosphere and environment for, again, our law enforcement officials and frontline workers and people who work in these kinds of high stress environments so that they could feel that ease of knowing, you know what, my department has my back, uh, my partner has my back and, you know, at least doing something to alleviate some of that tension or some of that battle that that you know must go on in the minds of so many people you know amen and and you know back to what you said about the 
the incidents that we have had that have been negative with with police that have gotten tremendous amount of media attention uh, we still at the end of the day have got to question the system um that the very last thing that you do is you look at the individual um you know even if you're just doing management uh at an automotive shop you know if, if a guy doesn't if he messes up on a brake job and you find out that he's never been trained to do a brake job um, so we really do have to we have to back up a step um i'm not saying that we don't hold people accountable for their actions they absolutely have to be held accountable but i do think that we have an even larger problem um you know one thing in particular we we send these guys to the police academy and these guys and gals and they learn all of these things. You know what they're not learning? They're not learning any mental health interventions for themselves. They're not learning uh, any kind of operational um, or, or psychological first aid and, and how to handle um, their adrenaline and how to handle uh, the degradation of their relationships and how to handle uh, when they're having suicidal ideation or their friends are having suicidal ideation. You know, why are we not addressing that? I, I, it seems so obvious to people like myself, but yet it, it's a battle to get any of that uh, in there. And and then we, we go do programs like CIT, which uh, is crisis intervention training that a lot of law enforcement go through, which is a phenomenal program. But once again, we're training officers to do crisis intervention with the people that they're responding to. Why are we not training them on how to intervene with their fellow officers, with their hell, uh, fellow fellow soldiers, whoever. Um, that's where we're failing. And so we have got to acknowledge that failure as a society that we are not equipping our people, number one. Um, and then we get down to where we start really holding people accountable for their actions. Because if I have given you all the tools that you need to be successful, I have implemented all the systems and training that you need to be successful and you still continue to fail, then we need to look at that individual and we need to deal with that individual because that is also a problem is that we have seen many times that many of these officers that have ended up in these tragic events have had several disciplinary actions. They, they've had a lot of issues. Um, and so we, we have to look at the system as well. Um, sometimes we see good officers get buried immediately uh, and then we see officers that have had cumulative issues in their career that get swept under the rug. So, um, and, you know, people are going to watch this and they're going to be upset with me for saying that. But I know it's true. I've talked to command, command staff. I've been at the academy level talking to instructors and talking to young officers that are about to go out on the street. And so I know facts are facts. Uh, and we have to address this. Um, and, and that's why programs like uh, the one that Blue Guardian Network is doing and stuff of that nature are so important because it's not a one one shot deal. It's about how do I go out there and do this vocation that I was crafted by God to do that gives me um, fulfillment. Um, it, it, it gives me purpose. How, how do I not only survive doing that, but how do I thrive doing that? That's what we owe our military first responders and people that are first line professionals is that we owe them the ability to thrive in the profession that I believe is, is a deeper thing uh, than DNA or something like that. I truly believe uh, that God crafted them to do the work. If we look in scripture, there's over a hundred and some verses in the Bible in particular, just talking about law enforcement. 
uh, it, it's flat out talking about law enforcement and the authorities in Scripture. So obviously, God created uh, individuals to enforce laws, uh, to keep society from completely going off the rails. Um, <clears throat> he created the military to protect our citizens and to protect the innocent. And folks are crafted to do this. You can't just pull somebody out of a, a Petri dish and say, hey, go do this. Um, it takes a special person to do each one of these vocations, um, it, it, you know, basically to to be a complete and total servant and get very little in return. Um, it's a tremendous undertaking in a in a very, uh, in my opinion, a very Christ-like attribute uh, that these individuals have. Hmm. Do you think? Because I know that this was your. Um, particular scenario, you know, having in your past experienced trauma and abuse, and then now today you're in this position where you've you've been uh, in the military, you do all the stuff that you do now, and just very much on the front lines, and you walk with people through these kinds of things, through trauma and through these different things. Do you think that there's a? Hold, I don't know. It seems it seems like a obvious question maybe the way that i'm going to ask it but do you feel like there's a correlation there between you know somebody who's been through s things that are traumatic in their past but being able to walk through them and go through the healing process and then on the other side of that being able to be the kind of person that's now helping others do the same walking through things whether that's working in an official capacity again as somebody who's in law enforcement or somehow you know working as a first responder or just in regular life working through counseling people and helping people walk through tragedy and, and through traumatic experiences and things what do you think the correlation is i guess uh, it, it seems to me like having walked through something that was traumatic or even a cumulative stress kind of environment in the past, but now having walked through a healing process and being on the other side, that there would just be this ability to kind of empathize with people that are going through something similar or even if it's not similar, but again, something that's traumatic in nature and being able to walk through that with them. How important, maybe the only way that I can really ask this question is how important do you think that that's been for you and maybe do you, is there some kind of a pattern there that you see that uh, people that have been through those kinds of things in the past that now they're they're maybe more adept or maybe they have a greater passion for helping other people learn how to do the same? Uh, absolutely, Duke. Um, it is absolutely not a mistake. It is God's plan. Um, they are not going to be reached. What does he say in scripture? He says that not one person will not be reached by the end of time. And the only way that you're going to reach these folks is to be able to look them dead in the eye and to understand all of the unsaid things that are going on in their mind and in their heart. The fear, the anguish, the pain, the suffering, the shame, the guilt, all of those things that we carry. You have to be able to look them in the eye and you have to be able to take that on yourself in order to stand by them and, and share in the agony that they're in and to understand them. Now, there are well-meaning individuals out there that they go and they get a degree and they read a book and then they bring people in the room and then they look at them and they say, I know how you feel. And that is the most condescending thing that you could ever say to someone 
when you haven't walked in their shoes or marched in their boots. And they don't mean to be that way, but it is a critical flaw. And I will tell you from experience doing it myself that you immediately shut down at that moment. And all it does is build even more distrust. So I, I absolutely do not believe in coincidence. I believe that we have divine appointments. Um, there's no other way of looking at it. How come when we're in a room of 600 people, we find each other? I mean, we are drawn to each other like magnets. It's it's unbelievable. Um, you know, my wife has commented on it. She's like, this is crazy. You know, it doesn't matter where we go, the supermarket, it doesn't matter. You always find the police officer or you always find the military guy. And we strike up this rapport like we've been friends for 20 years. And, and see, that that is no mistake. It's how God designed it. Uh, so the correlation is massive. Um we have to have been through the fires, some of us more than others even, to reach these folks that deserve to be healed. They deserve to thrive. And the number one thing is, is I just want them to know God made you this way. You have been crafted to do this. And that helps them get rid of a lot of that shame and that guilt that they carry, understanding that I was meant to do this. God made me to do this. And then we need to teach them how to cope because God designed us in his image, but he designed us before there was ever sin. So there's absolutely no flaw in God's design. We were never designed to deal with this stuff. Never, ever, ever. And so we, he has to use instruments of himself to walk beside and to empathize and to love these folks. And all we have to do is look at Christ. What did God do? He came and walked the earth and suffered the same way that we do every single day so that he can identify with us. And so it, it's just, it's un, unreal that, uh, that we don't understand that concept. I mean, I think of the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, you know, Christ was absolutely an empathic person and he totally understands everything that we're going through. Yeah, brother. Amen to that. And, and, and I, it just, it seems like, you know, what you were just saying there about being in the supermarket and finding somebody who's, you know, again, like-minded somebody who's been in a, you know, somebody who's in law enforcement or somebody who's in the military or a veteran or something like that. And you just kind of being automatically drawn to those people. And it just seems like there's there's something there that is so powerful and that needs to be utilized more and more, which is this idea of the community, I guess, building relationship. And I think that that's why what you were talking about with the peer support groups is so powerful and it's so important. And you know, I just think that it's it's such a big deal uh, across the board. And yeah, I really, really appreciate what you're saying there. I don't know if we're having. Can you still hear me? I don't know, because my. Yeah, I can still hear you. Know. It's it's like the video is going a little wonky. <laughs> Do you see what I see? I see it like. Flat yeah, down. it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. It's like a fun house. <laughs> Am I doing that on your end or is it because on my end I see you doing that. Do you see me doing that? No, no, you're not. It's it's on my end. It's pretty funny. I mean, you know, if we can make if we can make people laugh, then, you know, that's the best treatment. I'm going to pull this up real quick on the I'm going to see if it actually looks like that for. Pe oh, yeah, it looks like that in real life. 
Uh, Hopefully some people are uh, are laughing right now because that's real good positive endorphins. It's good stuff. Well, hopefully this isn't causing anybody to have like a seizure or something. Oh, I know. Yeah, we're we're gonna have to put that on there. Yeah, yeah. Strobe effect. I didn't think to uh, to call that out when I called out the trigger warnings, but but anyway, um, I I heard something where you were talking about epigenetics. So would you be willing to just kind of explain what epigenetics is, what that's all about? Yeah, so epigenetics is actually uh, the predisposed nature, um, the genetic component uh, that we do inherit uh, from our familial uh, curse and familial uh, chains of abuse. Um, so, so the best way to understand that would be um, – if I have two unhealthy parents that have very low serotonin levels um, and they have very high cortisol levels, that does actually manufacture in the process of how my little infant brain forms. And so we can see that that uh, definitely uh, affects the temperament type and it also affects the reactivity uh, of the child from an early age. Uh, so you're kind of starting off behind the, the eight ball there um, with your hormones and everything else. So there is a little bit of a hereditary component there too. It, here's a great example. I'll use myself as an example. Okay. My mother drank the whole time she was pregnant with me and she was actually intoxicated when she gave birth. I found out early on there's a thing called, you know, an alcohol allergy, okay? Okay. I literally could smell alcohol and it would affect me. It would cause me to have very negative emotions, just the smell of it. And so when we're talking about epigenesis, that's exactly what we're talking about. My body and my brain was already very, very sensitive to that substance. Because as I was forming in her womb, that was part of the formation. It's no different from, from drugs and different things have caused, you know, birth defects, uh, holes in the brain, different things. So, you know, I had to understand that, that I was literally predisposed to not only be an alcoholic like she was, but I was predisposed to act the same exact way that she did, which was either with violence or with fornication. It was one of the two. So in your particular life, are you saying you found yourself responding that way and going down that path yourself? Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and it started in my early teens. Um, I, I began drinking, um, and you know, I probably was the definition of an alcoholic at that point because you hide it. Um, it was, it was beyond just taking nips out of the old man's liquor cabinet. Um, you know, early high school years, I was actually using it as a coping mechanism. Um, and I reacted very similar to how my mother reacted when she drank. I was either fighting somebody or I was doing the other. Uh, it was one of the two. Um, so it, it was a, a terrible path um, that I was going down. And, and it just exacerbates it. Um, and that's why we see 
it's called comorbidity in, in, in medical circles. But what we see is that we have so many folks that ha are using substances or sex or adrenal uh, type things. You know, there's all these things that we get addicted to as a coping mechanism instead of dealing with the trauma. Um, and, and that's another failure of the system is that we throw these people into treatment, but yet we have not addressed these other issues. Uh, I can't expect somebody who is using alcohol on a regular basis to respond to any kind of treatment. I've got to get him off of the alcohol first wow. so that his brain is healed enough and clear enough to even respond uh, to what we're trying to do. Well, you, you, I remember that you mentioned last time you were on the podcast about one of the areas of brokenness in the system is that essentially if you're going to, I, I think you said that if, if you are a psychologist and you're going to be accepting insurance, basically you're going to have to create some kind of a diagnosis, right? So you have to, I guess the system essentially sets people up. Yes. To, have to give some kind of a diagnosis before you even have all this information and you know what's going on you can really get to the bottom of the situation so you can see how that kind of can get perpetuated over time and how somebody is basically they're they're thrust into some form of a diagnosis that's now got treatment attached to it and then i don't know do, do you think that then the subsequent behavior and counseling that comes after that is basically just trying to justify the the treatment and the diagnosis that's been created unfortunately duke it it is unfortunately it is um it, and this is what i don't understand okay and and there's probably uh gonna be doctors and mental health people that watch this that are gonna try to get my address and threaten me but guess what <laughs> it's broken the dsm I don't care how many times you write it, it says six months to a year repetitive behaviors on an X and a Y axis, and it says that it's observed by a team of professionals, not just your doctor, but they, they want input from your family, they want input from um, a counselor. You know, If you did it right, if you did it by their very own publication, we might actually be getting somewhere, but then insurance and big pharma gets in the mix and we need to have a diagnosis right away. Not to say anything about psychiatrists because they have tremendous amount of training, but they have become nothing but medication management. They're not doing any of the psychotherapy. They're not really doing any of the counseling. And, and I got to say, that's a heck of a burden. I really would not want to be a psychiatrist and prescribe something to someone when I really don't even know the client because there's so many things that happen with these medications if they're prescribed wrong. This could very well be, and I think it is, a huge contributor uh, to suicide in this population because they're being misdiagnosed and mismedicated. And if you look at the, the warnings on many of these medications, right there in the fine print, it says may cause suicidal ideation. And, and so I, I just, I don't know what it's going to take. Uh, I think that there's too many people with a lot of money that are making big decisions about people's health. And I think that that's the real tragedy. Um, it's the third largest money-making industry in the world. Unfortunately, sex trafficking is number one. 
Number two is oil or, or oil products. And then number three is pharmacology. And uh, that's got to raise some red flags with someone. Uh, it certainly raises raises it with me when uh, when we are not looking at any of the systemic causes. You know, if you don't get proper sleep and you don't get proper nutrition and give your body what it needs, do you not think that's going to affect your mood? You know, so <laughs> it, it, you're going to be a little bit grumpy. You, you know, what do they call it? Hangry? Yeah. So how do I justify, oh, well, you've got uh, disassociative disorder or you've got bipolar or whatever, and, and I'm going to put you on this medication. I didn't ask you when your last meal was, how much sleep you've been getting, um, what what is your environment like right now? Are you in, you know, in some kind of situational stressor right now? There's so many things, so many questions that we need to be asking our clients before we ever justify medication. Uh, medication should be a last result in it in, because there are bona fide, 100% bona fide cases of chemical imbalance. I'm not saying that that's not real because it is. But we better be daggone sure uh, before we get to that point. I mean, it, you just look at our kids with ADHD. It's the most overdiagnosed condition in history. And we, we have really screwed our kids up. Uh, Dr. James Dobson wrote a book, The Strong-Willed Child. I wish that everybody would read it because he talks about, as a psychologist and as a Christian, that certain people have a, a, a temperament that makes them a strong-willed kid. And what's funny is we see these kids turn into people like Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill, uh, Barack Obama, people like that. These were all high-spirited kids that they tried to say had hyperactivity. And look at look at what God created. He he created a masterpiece. Each one of us is a masterpiece. Man, I am I am a hundred percent with you on that. I think that so often, and and as you said, I mean there are situations where for sure uh, there are chemical imbalances, and there are situations where medication I think is a is a is a good thing, and it's a it's a good step to take. But yeah, I think so often in the case of, of our kids, like sometimes it's a kid that just needs discipline. Sometimes it's a kid that just they're not being challenged enough because they're they're smarter than the environment that they're in or they are their mind works differently. Amen. Amen. We, we yeah, I think that we try to have this machine, this, you know, education machine, and we try to just plug kids into it and say, this is how it needs to work. And this is what it is for every kid. I think a lot of kids can thrive in that environment, but there's a lot of kids that they're just, their mind works differently. They're more creatively wired or again, like what, you know, whatever it might be. And I think that we can be so quick to label. And when I say we, I just mean our society can be so quick to label people to label children to put them in some kind of a category and then there can be i think that pressure comes in the parents end up being pressured in some in some ways in some cases to again to put their their children on medication before they even really know what the full issue is and what's going on and just all this kind of stuff man so yeah i i i'm with you on that man and i just um there's so much craziness and we're 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 by far the most you know, medicated country <laughs> in the world. Um, and, uh, and again, so much of it again, and, and there are people in, in these industries that we're talking about, there are tons of people in these industries that are, that are there to make a difference and to do the right things. 
it's it's tough when you are in a system that's that's broken in so many ways but again behind so much of this is this issue of greed where you know pharmaceutical companies and people that are in these positions where they they need to satisfy their uh, their stockholders and stuff like that they make decisions that are not really for the good of humanity they're with their bottom line in mind and it's just it's crazy man it is it really is well if i could ask you something and maybe we can kind of um begin to move toward wrapping up this conversation and and maybe end on a little bit of a of a positive note i would you share with me kind of how you started to move we were talking a few minutes ago about how um you know because of your past and some of the trauma and things that you experienced that it ended up turning into um you know you ended up with some addictive tendencies and and started going down a a wrong path that was destructive in nature um how did that start to turn around for you and how did you kind of come out of that and yeah and essentially ultimately get to the place where you are now where you're not defined by the the trauma that was um that happened in your life you're not defined by the abusive situations that you grew up in but those things have actually become a part of your story a part of your testimony so that now you're in this place where you can speak into the lives of others you can teach and you can instruct you can help to pull other people out of the fire and all of that how did that start to turn around for you dr joe well, um, I, I'm going to have to say that it, it goes back to uh, your question about the parallels between empathy and, and walking out of the fire and somebody coming alongside these folks. That's literally what happened to me is that God sent people that had been through things. And it, it started with uh, befriending um this guy was at a point in his recovery with alcohol that he was sponsoring people and he just came out one day and he said look i'm gonna call an apple an apple and you've got a problem and this is what's gonna happen and you're gonna either end up like i did or or we're gonna address this and he was the first person who understood he was the first person who understood what it was like to to grow up in an alcoholic home and to have abusive parents and, and to use that as a coping mechanism. And so he befriended me and um, was a Christian man. This is how God works. He always sends you another Christian individual that's strong in their faith. And so from that moment on began uh, the start of my healing journey. Um, you know, the first thing I had to do, obviously, was, was get off any kind of substances. And then I had to uh, learn to not be so sexualized. Uh, to where um, I, I had to learn that uh, relationships were not about that, uh, as I had misconstrued in my brain uh, from being sexually abused. Um, he put strong individuals around me, not necessarily pastors uh, of people of that nature, but but other individuals that I could visually see were in the struggle but yet they had something I didn't have. For some reason, they had joy. Uh, they had the ability to walk through that trial in a totally different way. And so when you're in pain, that's very attractive to you. You're like, hey, whatever that mojo is, I, I really would like to have some of that. 
Um, and, and that's why we attract each other because uh, they see somebody that's able to walk through this fire with, with more resiliency. Uh, they're walking more upright. Um, and, you know, they're not being condescending about it. They're saying, hey, you know, life is not easy. But guess what? You can navigate this in a totally different way. And then you get the joy and the wonderful experience of walking beside someone else and helping them. Uh, and that is the the unbelievable, uh, most unbelievable uh, amount of freedom and validation and healing that you receive is when God, uh, it is a gift. When, when God allows us to walk beside somebody and if we can minimize their suffering in any way, if, if we can keep them from having to go through what we did, it, it is just an unbelievable victory to be able to do that. Um, and, and I truly believe that that's, that's why God has, uh, and you know, I, I'm going to tell the public now, do I still struggle? Absolutely. I still struggle. Um, we're always in a struggle, but God is, is continuing to refine us. He's continuing to chasten us so that we can uh, do the work that he set before us. And the more that we're able to cope with, the more he gives us because he needs us to, to be in a bigger fight. Uh, so I'm around a lot of difficult people. I'm around a lot of, uh, of folks that uh, they try your patience. Uh, they make you um, suppress the, the rage and the different things that are within your heart. And, and God is showing you, hey, you can do this. I am stronger. I am stronger than the enemy. I am stronger than, than all of his wiles and his attacks and all of the things that he uses. And so these are the things we, we have to have practical things that we can bring to another person. We can't just say, uh, do as I say. We need to be able to say, do as I do. Um, and that is a powerful thing. And, and that is 100 percent. Um, how I got to where I was, you know, culminating in uh, being through several modalities of therapy and finally going to a Christian psychologist that literally just said, shut up, because I was just a babbling, right? And she said, shut up for a second. She looked me dead in the eye and she said, you need to understand something right now. You are a walking miracle. Wow. And those words have stuck with me my entire life. She, she said, if you look at statistics and you look at all of these things, she said, you could be a serial killer. You could be, you know, a child molester. You could be all of these things because of your past. So the only explanation for you is that you are a walking miracle. God has his hand on you. He has purpose for you. And she literally told me there's nothing in my doctoral degree or my training or my fellowship or any of these things that I've been through that can justify the fact that you're that you're literally in this room right now getting help. You're not a criminal, uh, you, you know. She couldn't justify it. She said, there's absolutely nothing in these manuals that justify you sitting here. So she said, I have to call it what it is. It's literally a miracle. And she said, whatever he's got you doing is going to be an amazing thing. And little did I know within 10 years of that conversation uh, that I would be in an active role actually helping people. Um, and it continues to evolve. Um, you, you think that you have a niche or you've mastered your craft. And uh, God continues to throw things your way, and then uh, a little bit further down the road, he throws an individual your way, right? And then you're like, oh, okay, 
I understand now, God. I know why you, you threw that curveball to me because this person at this very moment right now, uh, I needed to talk to them and help them in some way. And uh, that's that's what gets us through, Duke, uh, every day, uh, especially just as people of faith. We're under a lot of scrutiny uh, from Jump Street. Uh, it, it's unbelievable the amount of people that try to discredit. You can have literally the same exact degree from the same exact school, but because you're bringing Christ into the equation, you're some kind of witch doctor or kook. Um, but yet we believe in, in Reiki and all these other crazy things. You know, somebody's pulling energy out of their body and healing you with their energy. You're telling me that that doesn't sound crazy. But yet when I say that Christ is the ultimate healer, I'm, I'm cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. It makes no sense. But, you know, what do we do? We, we justify our sin, right? That's what we do. We have to try to rationalize our behaviors and our sins because deep inside, we were created in God's image, so there's conviction there. It's there, and we don't like it, right? So we have to try to rationalize it and justify it, and uh, you know that's the way it works. It's it's the way that the world works, unfortunately. Just based on what you just said, something else popped into my mind, and I'm wondering if just before if we before we wrap this up, if you could kind of speak into something for me. That I feel like so so often we attach this negative stigma. To things like counseling you know god forbid you've got to go see a marriage counselor or god forbid you've got to go see some kind of a counselor right because that means that you're weak or that means that you're disqualified or that means that you're not good enough or that means that you failed or that means whatever uh, i would just like if you could speak into that for just a minute your perspective because if you we all we all need somebody we we all need we all need people we all need help and there's times in our lives where you, where we need more help than others. And if you need help, you need to talk to somebody. You need to get some things off your chest, whether that's talking to a friend, talking to a peer, or going to a professional. It doesn't make you less than. It doesn't mean that you're a failure. It doesn't mean that your life is over. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean any of that. And, and I just think that we can come under this stigma and we can disqualify ourselves from certain things. And anyway, I just think that there could be so much shame associated with getting help, going to counseling, talking to somebody and getting things off our chest and just being open and honest and vulnerable with people. I think it happens with women, too. But I think definitely, especially with men, this idea that, you know, if you if you cry, that makes you weak. If you if you talk about your feelings, if you talk about your emotions, it makes you weak. It makes you less of a man. It makes you whatever. And, you know, I just think that so many people are missing out on life and they're missing out on help that's there and it's available for them because of that kind of shame or that just wrong thinking around manhood or whatever it is. Or, or even, you know, again, it, it can happen with men and women, this idea that well, if I go to somebody for help, it means I'm not strong enough as an individual. And there's this need to feel like you're strong and, uh, you know, self-actualized and all this stuff. Anyway, would you uh, just speak into that for a moment before we uh, wrap this up? So we can start at the beginning of time when God made man. That's good. And this, this little thing happened up in heaven, didn't it? This, this little thing, this little division happened in heaven because of a thing called pride. Mm -hmm. And this is the largest event in history, really. 
the division of heaven and and everything that follows started with pride we are not going to get anywhere with pride and we need to accept it for what it is people need to understand that not getting help not acknowledging that you have a problem is an ego issue and you can tell it's an ego issue because when you tell that person they're having an ego issue how do they react they get mad right and you're like okay i just proved it to you that you have an ego problem because you wouldn't be mad with me telling you that um it is a form of ego it's also a product of how we were brought up and we need to understand that um if you were brought up in a hard home with with hard parents uh that associated crying or, or any of these things as weakness you were programmed and sometimes we we need a fellow uh person uh that's that's a christian person that's a caring person to just help us see that to understand you know when you were a child how did that make you feel oh it made you feel awful didn't it well guess what you're an adult now and you're still feeling awful about it there's nothing wrong with communicating there's nothing wrong with uh having a, an intimate relationship or a close relationship somebody that you can trust and allowing yourself to purge some of that stuff out um if if you could be in a helicopter and you could look down on yourself and you could look down on your family and you could look down and see you from a helicopter and you saw that person you would immediately say man that person needs some help that's that's what's hilarious and you know hilarious in a bad way um if we were able to look at ourselves from from that view we would immediately know that we had issues but we we can't see what's right in front of our face um i want to talk right now to those that are watching this video hopefully that that are in this demographic maybe you need help maybe you don't know how to get help when when i'm teaching suicide prevention um i say a very cliche thing but I literally tell people when I'm certifying gatekeepers that people are dying to talk about it. And that sounds cliche, but it is the absolute truth. And, and I want people to understand that, that people are literally dying every day because they want to talk about it so bad. And, and it's absolutely critical that we do. And you need to keep in mind that we're also stealing blessings from other individuals, okay? Because God created people to be that listening ear, to receive the blessing of being the one that can help you. That's their blessing. That's their fulfillment. That's their purpose on the earth. So we're stealing their blessing. We're also stealing the potential blessing of you healing and helping so many others. Because we we need to acknowledge that we we hate the way that we feel we can't stand the way that we feel so if we're in a helping profession and a serving profession you cannot look in the mirror and say that you would want that to be anybody else you would not want anybody to feel the way that you're feeling and if you can get it if we can get it through our thick skulls like i had to that we actually can experience healing and thrive at what we do. But not only that, we can help those other people that are dealing with the same thing. It's, it appeals to that demographic. It really does because the whole reason you're in it is to serve and to protect people and to help people. 
So if you can help these guys and gals understand that by healing, you're actually going to be even more of a helper. You're going to be even more uh, powerful in the role and in the craft and in the job that God created you to do. Um, that's the stigma that we need to erase uh, right there uh, as a society. We, we are capable of talking about some things that as an adult, I would have never even conceptualized as a child. Um, people dressing up as animals and having conventions, um, people identifying as a five-year-old kid and they're, they're in their 50s getting their diapers changed. I mean, there's stuff out there that, I mean, I, it's hard for me to even wrap my head around it, that we as a society not only think it's normal, but we're able to talk about it over dinner. But yet, we still can't address the effects of trauma and abuse and the epidemic that is staring us right in our face right now. And it's good people that are taking their lives under the strain and under the, the bearing of sin and the lack of support and the lack of will or hope uh, to get help. Um Someday, uh, you know, hopefully by the grace of God, before I leave this earth, I would really like for that to be a dinner conversation at some point in a household. Um, at the route we're going now, we're not even having dinner conversations anymore, which is sad, but I would love to be that more of a topic of discussion. Yeah, just being able to be open and honest and to talk things out with people in your life, people that you're surrounded with that love you and to not feel that 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 pressure, that fear that you're going to be judged. Um, you know, I think that it happens on both sides, man. I think that we have this idea sometimes that we don't want to open up because we don't know how we're going to be perceived. And on, on the other side, it's like we don't always like people to open up to us because we don't know how we're going to respond. You know, I mean, the average person that hasn't been through training or that hasn't, you know, experienced those things themselves. I, I think that there's this kind of fear that people have when someone does begin to open up to them. They kind of like they don't know what to say or they're, they're worried that they're going to say the wrong thing. And all of this, I think if we could learn how to foster what you're talking about, more comfortability around these topics so that we can actually be there for one another and, uh, yeah, talk about them around a dinner table where not just in some closed, you know what I mean, like closed off kind of place where uh, it's got to be in private and whatever. There's nothing wrong with talking in private, but but I, I just I really love what you're saying there about you know, it becoming more mainstream and more just part of daily life, just that willingness to open up and to share and to at the same time know that it's going to be reciprocated and that the people that you're talking to, um, you know, they're not going to feel at the same time the pressure to have to give some kind of a clinical response, but just to be there. Last time you were here, we talked about ministry of presence and, you know, sometimes it's not even a matter of saying words. It's just the fact that they know that they're that you're there and that they can confide in you and trust that you're going to protect them and not betray their trust. And just uh, sometimes, man, it's just that that closeness of a friend or family member or a peer and being able to just kind of open up and be honest and get some things off your chest. And it, you, it might be cliche, but that's that's such a powerful statement that people there are people around you that are literally dying to speak to you and yeah man if we could just work together 
to create more of that sense of community and camaraderie around some of these issues and stop stigmatizing mental health. Um, yeah, I think we'd all be much, much better off. Amen. I, I love what you said about the ministry of presence there, Duke, you know, and, and I probably said something to this effect last time, but I, I always think of Job and how his friends were sitting with him. Um, and they were doing such a good job until they opened their mouths. <laughs> you know, and that's what we do. We, we, we want to fix that other person, especially men. We're, we're fixers, and, and we, we, we're working out some kind of solution in our head to fix the problem. And we don't understand that some of these problems, it, it is absolutely not something that we can control. Uh, and, and then Jesus in the garden uh, before his crucifixion, all he wanted was his very close friends to be awake and to be praying and to be present with him. Um, it's very, 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 very uh, critical uh, for us to understand how important it is to just be present um, and just to love people where they are. Um, we, we don't have to understand we don't have to um, have a solution to their problem necessarily, but just to be there and for them to know that they're not alone is just such a powerful thing. Amen. Well, Dr. Joe, uh, as we uh, wrap this up, would you share uh, just where people can go? Again, I know we mentioned the YouTube channel for Project Paladin, but uh, if you'd share whether uh, maybe a website or social media page or something like that where people can go to connect either with you or some more resources and to find out more about some of the things that we've been talking about here today. Okay, so uh, if you if you visit uh, Project uh, Paladin Family at Weebly.com, which is the uh, website, which will have a, a link up for that, um, I do have some other resources on the page. Um, you can always uh, reach me through social media on the Facebook or the LinkedIn page. Uh, you can even reach me through the YouTube page as well because there's a, a place there for you to uh, contact me. Uh, I'm an open book. Um, I'm willing to, to talk with just about anybody, answer any questions, uh, but also to try to help whoever needs help uh, assimilate to resources that are, are good for them. Um, so, you know, I hope that you'll check us out. Um, it, it's a real blessing uh, that, that Duke and I uh, were able to get together. I'm very appreciative to uh, be on your platform, Duke, and to be able to, to speak. And um, I hope and pray that somebody tonight was, was reached in a, in a very powerful way um, and that they're willing to take a step of faith and, and get some help. Yeah. Yeah, and I just I just kind of feel led to say, uh, you know, no matter no matter what you've been through or what you're going through, or even like I feel like there's a lot of shame for for people like if you've gone through something in the past and maybe got past it, but then you relapsed into it again. Like I feel like people there's there's shame that comes with that, and and people start to feel like they're they're not good enough and they're a failure and. Look, I just want to say that no matter what you've gone through, no matter what's been done to you, no matter what you're going through right now, none, none of it disqualifies you. And the truth is, like like we've seen in in uh, in Dr. Joe's story here, we need we need you. We need your story. We need your testimony. Uh, there's the world around you needs you and they and they need um, they need your story. They, they really do. And 
you can have an impact on so many people. And if you feel like you, you can't feel like you're, you're, you're not good enough. Like you're not worthy because of something you've been through or whatever. Just want to let you know that those are, that's just a lie of the enemy. It's not true. And that, uh, none of that, none of what you've gone through disqualifies you. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I just, just, I don't know if there's anybody dealing with anything like that, but, but if you are, um, just know that you are an awesome, amazing, wonderful, beautiful, beautiful person created in God's image. And, uh, he's still got a tremendous plan for your life. So, um, well, Dr. Joe, I appreciate you, brother. Amen. So much again Amen. For coming on the show, man. Thank you so much for having me, Duke. It's, it's a real pleasure. I appreciate you very much. And, uh, Everybody who's watching, he's about to have another youngster coming to the world. So uh, please be praying for uh, for Duke and his wife and their family uh, for health and safety. And uh, I know he's going to bless you, sir. You deserve all good things. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're at as of today, we're at the 38 week mark. So uh, we've on paper got a couple more weeks, but in theory, it could be any time. So we're pumped. We're super busy just getting everything ready and we're excited. But yeah, we do appreciate the prayers. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Joe, for mentioning that. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. God bless you, sir. All right. God bless you, too. Bye, everybody.